Chapter Eight of Through Glacier Park Sing America First with Howard Eaton by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight Bears. It was the next day that I made my first close acquaintance with bears. There are many bears in Glacier Park. Firearms are forbidden, of course, and the rangers kill them only in case of trouble. Naturally so protected, they are increasing rapidly. They find good forage where horses would starve. Mr. Ralston, the park supervisor, saw a she-bear with three cubs last spring. There are no tame bears, as in the Yellowstone. There are plenty of animals. Some fifty moose graze along the flathead. Beavers have colonies in many of the valleys, and industriously build dams that deepen the fords. I remember one place along the Cutbank Trail, where the first horses found themselves above the belly in water, and confronting a perpendicular bank up which one or two scrambled as best they could. The rest turned, and riding in the stream for half-mile detour, made the trail again. That was the work of beavers. There are coyotes aplenty. Because they kill the deer and elk, the rangers poison them in the winter with strychnine. A few mountain lions remain, as one can make a whole night hideous, a few are sufficient. There is something particularly interesting about a bear. Perhaps it is because he can climb a tree. In other words, ordinary subterfuges do not go with him. Reports vary. He is a fighter. He is a craven. The fact being, of course, that he is, like all wild animals, and most humans, a bit of each. The trip was over, and I had seen but one bear. At Lewis's that last Sunday I voiced my disappointment. Soon after I received word quietly that Frank Higgins, guide and companion on many hunting trips to Stuart Edward White and other hunters, had offered to show me some bears. He had horses saddled under a tree when I went back, and two men, one of them a Chicago newspaper artist, were with him. We mounted and rode up the trail back of the hotel. I was dubious. For days I had tried to see bears and failed, and now to have them offered with certainty by Mr. Higgins made me skeptical. I had an idea that under his tall impassiveness he was having a little fun at my expense. He was not. We went out into the forest to where the hotel dumps its garbage. That was rather a blow at first, and there were no bears, only a great silence and a considerable stench. We got off our horses, tied them, and sat down on a log. Almost immediately there was a distant crackling of branches. One coming now, said Frank Higgins. Just sit quiet. The first bear, however, was nervous. He circled around us. I set my camera for one hundred feet and waited. But the creature, a big black, was shy. He refused to come out. Mr. Higgins went after him. He snarled. I looked after Mr. Higgins with a new respect, and the Chicago newspaper man said he was perfectly satisfied with the bear where he was, and that enough was enough. The bear suddenly took to a tree, climbing like a cat. He looked about the size of a grand piano. Urged by Mr. Higgins, we approached the tree. Finally, we stood directly beneath. He growled. The bear, of course, not Frank Higgins but my courage was rising. Wild bear he was, but he was a craven. I moved up the focus of my camera and took his picture. 
We left him there and went back to the log. All at once there were bears in every direction, six in all. I moved my camera to thirty feet and snapped another. They circled about, heads turned toward us. Now and then they stood up to see us better. We were between them and supper. The newspaper man offered to sketch me with a bear background, and he did. Now and then he would say, Isn't there one behind me? About twenty feet away, I would say. Good Lord! But he went on drawing. I have that picture now. It is very good, but my eyes have the look of a scared rabbit. Our friend still clung in the tree. The other man had ridden back to the hotel for camera films. Time went on, and he did not return. We made would-be facetious remarks about his courage, from our own pinnacle. Almost an hour. The sketch was nearly finished, and twilight was falling. Still he had not come. Then he appeared. He had taken the wrong trail, and had been riding those bear-infested regions alone. He was smiling, but pale. To visit bears in a party is one thing. To ride alone, with fleeting black and brown figures skulking behind fallen timber, is another. Not for a long time, I think, will that gentleman forget that hour or so when he was lost in the forest with bears, thick as autumnal leaves that strew the brooks in Vallombrosa. The poetic quotation is my own idea. What he said was entirely different. As a matter of fact, his own expression was, Hell, the place is full of them. At last, very quietly, Mr. Higgins got up. Here's a grizzly, he said. You might stand near the horses. We did. The grizzly looked the exact size of a seven-passenger automobile with a limousine top, and he had the same gift of speed. The black bears looked at him and ran. I looked at him and wanted to. The artist put away his sketch, and we strolled toward the horses. They had not objected to the black bears, beyond watching them with careful eyes, but now they pulled and flung about to free themselves. Wherever he goes, a grizzly bear owns his entire surroundings. He carries a patent of ownership. He could have the woods for all of me. The black bears were in full retreat. A hound dog came loping up the trail and caught the scent. In an instant he was after them. Any hope I had ever had of outrunning a bear died then and there. The dog was running without a muffler. One of his frantic yelps changed to a howl as the rearmost bear turned and swatted him. A moment, and the chase was on again. There is only one thing to do if a bear takes a sudden dislike to one. It is useless to climb or to run. Go toward it and try kindness. Ask about the children in a carefully restrained tone. Make the Indian sign that you are a friend. If you have a sandwich about you, proffer it. Then, while the bear is staring at you in amazement, turn and walk quietly away. It was growing dark. The grizzly, having driven off the black bears, turned his attention to us. We decided that it was almost dinner time, and that we did not care to be late. Anyhow, we had seen enough bears. Enough is enough. We mounted and rode down the trail. Not all game is as plentiful as bears in Glacier Park, or thrives so well. With the cutting up of the range, many of them have lost their winter grazing grounds. 
practically the last of the Rocky Mountain sheep and goats, are in Glacier Park. Last winter numbers of these increasingly rare animals were found dead by the rangers. That is another thing the government will do eventually. It may never see that the Blackfeet Indians have a square deal, but it will feed what is left of the game. There is little of the Old West left. Irrigation, wheat, the cutting up of the Indian reservations into allotments, the homesteader, all spell the end of the most picturesque period of America's development. Not for long, then, the cowpuncher in his gorgeous chaps, the pack-train winding its devious way along the trail. The boosting spirit has struck the West. Settlements of one street and thirteen houses, eleven of them saloons, are suddenly becoming cities. The railroads and the automobiles, by obliterating time, have done away with distance. The Old West is almost gone. Now is the time to see it. Not from a train window, not, if you can help it, from an automobile, but afoot, or on horseback, leisurely, thoroughly. End of chapter 8